Here's the thing though. Welcome to another episode of our podcast. Here's the thing though. My name is Saliha and I am your host for today. And I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. Hey, hey. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal and Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people, past, present and future and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. So Mitch, how's it going? How are you? I, I'm good. I'm good. I feel like it's been going well. I'm back to uni next week, so now some structure is re-emerging in my life, which I'm welcoming. I'm excited for. I had all these ambitions. I'm sure it's like everyone does every holidays. Not quite fulfilled, but in the past week, it's been all right. Are you back um, in person now? Yes. Yes, I am. I'm very keen. That's exciting. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's difficult because COVID's still an issue. Mm. and But it, it's just going to be so much better being I saw, in um, I saw in the news today that there were 7,400 COVID cases in New South Wales. And I was like, oh, that's so low. <laughs> I know, yeah. <laughs> and then I was like, wow. Wow. Well, um, well, that's what it was like, you know, a couple of weeks ago for me when people were saying, oh, yeah, I'm talking to friends. And they're like, oh, yeah, like I'm, you know, re-entering the world because COVID isn't much of an issue. The cases have been going down. And it's like, yeah, the cases have been going down from like, you know, 40,000 to 15. That is a <laughs> decrease, but that's still incredibly high. Mm. But, you know, COVID hasn't been on my mind as much as it was before. I haven't been checking it every day. Neither. Which... Either is it like a good thing or we're just sort of complacent. I think we're just complacent, but in our defense, there's only so much an individual can handle. Mm. I just feel like it's, I just don't have the emotional bandwidth to know how many cases there are every day. And I'm not ashamed of that. And I'm also boosted up. So I That's feel true. like significantly safer. You know, what? I do need to get my booster shot this week. Especially you should probably going- get it. Yeah. Before then. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, how have you been? Um, I've been, I've been good. Like same old, I think, you know, in the past week, I don't think I've done a whole lot, which I'm fine with. I just kind of clock off work and then I put on a Harry Potter audiobook mm. and I disassociate and that's okay <laughs> because that is how I'm coping with my life right now. I do feel like, yeah, a little bit burnt out, a little bit emotionally volatile, but it is what it is. This is my baseline at this point now. I feel like my my baseline of normal and well has shifted, not necessarily for the better, but I'm just going with it. I refuse. I'm I'm trying this new thing where I just accept my emotions as they are and then I move on, which I feel like has actually been kind of good for me. Mm. I feel like I maybe I read it somewhere or like I, somebody offhandedly mentioned it in a podcast. I don't know. I feel like I came across the idea of just like accepting your emotions and moving on and not lingering on them and I think that's been working for me because I will feel depressed and then I'll think about how depressed I am and then I'll feel more depressed because now I'm mourning myself yeah um and I'm really trying not to do that it's the same with anxiety the moment I notice I'm anxious I get a million times more anxious because now I'm anticipating all the ways that anxiety is going to affect me yes so this is like one thing that psychologists really try and teach which is maybe foreshadowing a little bit. Also, just look at me completely therapizing myself. Yeah. Hell yes. <laughs> but that's actually been, it's been working for me. I'm just like, yep, I'm not well anyways. And I feel like that's helping. That's something I try and do myself as well. But sometimes it's easier said than done. 
I agree. Yeah. I definitely am just reaching a level of apathy that I don't know how healthy it is. But whatever. It's fine. We're fine. Everything is fine. But speaking of psychology and emotional regulation, that is pretty relevant to our topic today. But before we get into that, we have some follow-up. Yes, I have some follow-up for last week's episode, which is like literally follow-up. We did an episode, now we're following up on it. Which is so rare. I feel like our follow-up is normally just really sporadic, yeah, just random shit that we mentioned stuff. like 10 months ago. Yeah. But this is like follow-up in the, in the purest form. In the form. most literal sense. And so last week's episode, if you didn't listen to it, was sort of my own deep dive into small houses, the politics of tiny living, and essentially- we claim that it was all like bourgeois ideology, that it's small living as virtue and as being sustainable, but it's actually completely inaccessible to, you know, people that could actually take advantage of it. It's all just like landlord propaganda. Essentially. And so listen to the episode if you haven't. But I wanted to do some follow up because a listener named James uh, sent me some messages, which I thought were very, very interesting and very enlightening and shows a slightly different side from what I was talking about on the pod. So, James messaged me saying that he's actually been down the sort of same rabbit hole as I have been. And he actually was maybe interested in the sort of apartments that were being displayed on shows that I talked about, like Never Too Small. And actually started contacting architects and whatnot to see how practical this type of living is. And I'll just read the messages he sent me. James said, I actually started looking into how you could go about renovating your own apartment. I contacted some of the architects featured on Never Too Small, and every build was about $100,000 to $200,000. People who don't already have capital can't get a construction loan to design and renovate a tiny apartment. And they probably can't even get a deposit for half of the property value, even if they have 50% deposit, because banks won't lend for properties less than 50 square meters usually. So even though there are probably thousands of apartments that young people or people who need housing could definitely afford to pay off and live in, banks would rather give you a mortgage with a 5% deposit for a million dollar house in the middle of nowhere. And I think that's really interesting because, I mean, that's something I didn't even really know myself. I didn't really look into like the nitty gritty practical aspects of renovating an apartment like this. And I think that that's so interesting that firstly, these sort of renovations are wildly expensive, but also... There's a specificity with these tiny homes where you can't even get the loans to do such a renovation because of how small the house is, which seems sort of ironic. So the only people that can actually afford to live in these somewhat nice tiny spaces are people who already have $200,000 laying around, which are not the people that actually need these places. Yeah. And then it kind of isn't surprising that like most of the people who own a tiny home are landlords because who has disposable income of hundreds of thousands of dollars landlords because of real estate yeah that was really interesting really great thank you james for that yes tidbit of information because i found that so funny in like kind of a dark way as well because it was just like of course of course we like watched a show about tiny houses where like it's marketed as like the perfect solution to people with only a little bit of money who are looking to get into the property market or who are looking to find an affordable home. And then when you actually look into it, you can't get a loan for a house that small. So you have to buy it outright, which no one can fucking do. So just to reiterate, the people that can afford to live in nice small apartments are the same people that could probably more easily afford large houses in suburbia. So we're not actually seeing a displacement. It just shows that this sort of living is, again, just like a virtue that rich people can take on because it seems sort of interesting and fun. Yeah, it's just like poverty porn. Mm. So let's introduce today's topic. Wait, that's it for follow-up? Yes. What? 
<laughs> That's crazy. Shocking news. Yes. Yeah, so I'm going to introduce today's episode. We're going to do a more conversational format today. I feel like the last couple of episodes have been pretty like informative. Like we've got this topic and we're like deep diving. We've done all the research. And today we're like having more of a discussion because Mitch and I have been talking about this just like conversationally between ourselves for a while now. And it's stuff that I've like slowly been reading about and like having discussions about. And even then I feel like I'm still developing certain answers myself, but I feel like a lot of you have asked similar questions or wanted to talk about similar topics to this one. So I thought, you know what, let's just have a discussion on the podcast. I mean, I know a lot of you will have thoughts. So yes, we can have an interesting discussion then in the DMs afterwards. And it's kind of a bit of a communal discussion. I think there may be some disagreement as well, depending on where we yes. get to. I feel like this will be controversial. So today we are going to talk about mental health and capitalism, specifically mental illness and capitalism, and more specifically than that, the chemical imbalance theory, or rather the chemical imbalance myth. So I kind of came across the idea of like the chemical imbalance myth due to an Instagram content creator that I follow, Dr. Aisha Khan. She's got a PhD. She's a scientist. I think she specializes in infectious diseases, but she creates a lot of content around like politics, specifically like capitalism and anti-capitalism. She's an anarchist and she puts up like really interesting and informative infographics and stuff on a lot of topics. But lately I've been consuming her capitalism and mental health posts that she's been putting up. And I shared one actually on Instagram like a couple of months ago, which generated a lot of discussion and it was very controversial. I feel like I had a range of responses, which was like good. Like it was good that we were having discussions and disagreeing with each other because that's how you learn, right? Like we want to attack cognitive dissonance. But Yes. So I saw a bunch of her posts discussing the myth of the chemical imbalance theory and essentially positing the idea that a lot of mental illnesses are just concepts under capitalism and wouldn't exist in the form that they do outside of it. And she talks a lot about the response to mental illnesses or like cures or treatments of mental illnesses and pharmacology and things like antidepressants and I guess how we view those and the language around them. Um, under capitalism and the ties between like psychology, psychiatry and capitalism and how they can be a bit nefarious, actually. And I find all of that very interesting. So today we're just going to kind of discuss these ideas. We're going to discuss myths and theories around what creates a mental illness and how we define a mental illness and how we treat a mental illness as a society and what we could be doing differently. I just want to issue a quick content warning. This episode does discuss mental illnesses and at some point we reference self-harm. Uh, and suicide, but nothing in depth at all. So let's get into it. So maybe I should start this discussion with what is the chemical imbalance theory? Because I imagine a lot of you are actually very familiar with it, but just maybe haven't heard of it referred to in this way. Yeah, I think when a lot of people think of like mental illness or mental health, this is sort of what first comes to mind, even if they don't have these words to describe it. This is the, the, the conception that they have. Yeah. So the chemical imbalance theory, to put it as simply as possible, is the idea that mental illnesses are a result of chemical imbalances in the brain, and thus they can be treated and cured by correcting those imbalances. I'm sure you've all come across that idea, especially like if you were on Tumblr in 2014, like I was, which is probably when I first became exposed to the chemical imbalance theory, because I personally saw just like a lot of teenagers discussing their mental health struggles and their mental illnesses. And frequently like conversations would come up 
about like, you know, I can't help being depressed. It's like a chemical imbalance. And I think this idea, at least in a colloquial local sense, came up to defend your mental health. I think now we kind of forget like how stigmatized mental illness was in high school even like for me which was only five years ago but i feel like now everyone talks about at least in our generation talks quite comfortably about mental health and mental illness and being depressed and seeing a therapist and being on medication and like whatever diagnoses you may have it's like quite normal i feel yeah no i definitely feel that way even you know yeah five ten years ago it was definitely something you you kept to yourself yeah but now it's like everyone is very open about about you know that they're seeing someone that they're struggling with something And part of the reason that, you know, it was so stigmatized, at least for me in high school, was this idea that you were like attention seeking or you made it up or you were being dramatic um, or you were faking it. There was a real undermining of mental illness as like legitimate and as something that can be as debilitating as like a physical illness. And I think a lot of people, especially teenagers at that time, were feeling quite gaslit by others around them and so the idea of I can't help being depressed it's like the chemical imbalance in my brain is validating because people can't argue with that because then it's not all in your head it has like a physical manifestation and I think people needed to have that to legitimize their illness to other people because if they can't understand it conceptually well they can understand a physical illness you can break a leg and you can have cancer and you can have low serotonin, which is depression. Like it was the idea that depression is low serotonin and depression is just the word for that. I saw that a lot personally as a teenager, but I think that's still really common today among teenagers as well. Less so I think the older people get. I feel like that's something I personally was really exposed to with like that teenage where like kids are starting to actually learn about mental illnesses and talk about them they're probably also fighting their parents and having to legitimize their mental illness to other people i don't know i just feel like i was very exposed to the chemical imbalance theory and like i would frequently use that as well to defend myself and validate how i feel yeah well i mean like you were saying i think discussing chemical imbalances to saying that you know my brain doesn't work as it's meant to like there is a way my brain's meant to work and it's just this isn't not happening like i'm meant to have these chemicals and i don't don't, it's not my fault i'm very sad and i think that's a really big part of mental illness you know in the 21st century becoming validated something that we can talk about so freely because i i mean before to look at mental illness you'd have almost like these two perceptions. One was really informed by a lot of like media at the time, which is about like madness, you know, these really yeah. extreme illnesses. These crazy, psychotic, like all those kind of buzzwords. And then the other one would be like, if you're depressed or anxious or experiencing mental illness, you sort of be grouped into that category or you'd be seen as like faking it or like lazy. Yeah, or, like female know. hysteria and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. Stuff like that. Yeah, I feel like either people are treating you like you're quote unquote crazy or it's kind of the opposite end of the spectrum and they're moralizing your depression as something you choose because you're actually like you have a personality defect. You're lazy. You're irresponsible. All of those stigmas kind of carried on. Probably still do in a lot of places for a lot of people. So with the chemical imbalance theory, I see why people have an attachment to it. Because it's validating. I think it makes your mental illness more valid to other people because now you can say that it's not my fault and it's got nothing to do with anything I've done. 
it's like something I can't help. And it's something that you can't moralize. You can't moralize my like lack of serotonin. It's just a thing that happened. Yeah. And I think that's why there's been you know such great visibility in recent years, because like I said before, I think there's been almost like these two spectrums of like mental illness is something that is very extreme. You're talking about like quote unquote madness. Or it's something that is either like you're depressed because you're lazy or it's because you're really traumatized. Like mental illness says a lot about you. And I think for a lot of people, it was like their mental illness defines them as a person or that's what people treat them as. And like if you said, you know, I'm depressed, but at least a few years ago, people would assume something fucked happened to you. Yeah, which is why it's you're, so stigmatized. You're a traumatized mess. Exactly. Because then you're like, okay, well, I don't want people to think that I'm fucked up. Yeah, so I'm not, I'm not going to tell them. Yeah, I'm not going to talk to people about, you know, things I've been struggling with with my mental health because it's going to say so much about me, which I don't want them thinking. But I think with talking about mental illness in terms of chemical imbalances, which I think has been the dominant way that we've been talking about it in like the past decade, it's like we can almost treat it as something separate to us. Us, that we can talk to people about it because to say that I'm depressed doesn't mean that there's something wrong with me or that I'm traumatized. I can have these open conversations because we can be nonchalant about it because it, it doesn't reflect me some like essential self. It's like an illness. It's like a disease that I, I have come because I, I wouldn't feel bad about telling someone that I have the flu, for example, because having the flu doesn't say anything about my past or who I am. And I think that's a big reason and a good reason why we have been so open in recent years about struggling with things such as mental illness. I think you really hit the nail on the head when you said, uh, this doesn't mean there's anything wrong with me. Because I think that's like the key thing is now that we can talk about mental illnesses as just chemical imbalances, it no longer means it's a personality defect or it's an Im- like there's something actually wrong with you specifically. You're weird or, lo- or you're like messed up. In a way, it's like not pathologizing yourself because now it's just like something that anyone can experience. It has nothing to do with your circumstances or who you are. Like you could be really traumatized and be depressed and you could also have led a relatively comfortable life and be depressed. And it's just almost generalized this thing. And in a way, I think people find com- people find comfort in that. Which, like, makes a lot of sense. Like, mental illness is something quite personal and hard to talk about. And it makes it a lot easier when you can delegate it to just, oh, yeah, my serotonin. I feel like recently, and by recently I mean in, like, the last two years, I've slowly kind of started to question that without realizing it, without being conscious of it. And I feel like the first time I can maybe think about that was when I started to think about antidepressants because... I was feeling pretty depressed and a lot of people that I was close to were also like struggling with depression and were starting antidepressants or their GPs were like prescribing them antidepressants like without prescribing therapy as well. And I was like, oh, like, do I need antidepressants? Like maybe I should ask my GP for antidepressants. Like maybe I should look into that as an option because I don't really want to go to therapy and nobody else around me is going to therapy and they're all taking antidepressants. So like... Maybe I should do that. Like, that seems like a good idea. (laughs) So I was looking into it and my mom is a psychologist and I remember talking to her about it and she was like, absolutely not. If you are going to go on antidepressants, you should be going to therapy as well. As a psychologist, my professional advice is to do therapy or therapy and antidepressants, but not do just antidepressants. And I was like, oh, okay. And she was like, yeah, like you kind of, they need to work in tandem, which I didn't really question much, but I was like, yeah, cool. That's fair. And then I never went on either. But then there's kind of been other conversations as well that I've had over the years that have made me like somewhat critical of 
the chemical imbalance theory. <laughs> One thing that was said to me that I think really kind of pushed me towards a critical lens was in one of my uni lectures because I have a minor in psychology so I'm not an expert you're the expert compared to me yeah between Mitch and I I know more but I'm not an expert I don't have like a master's in psychology I have a minor which is enough to have like more knowledge than the average person at least but anyway in one of my psychology lectures I had this really amazing lecturer who I really liked and she did child psychology with us and at some point she like then subbed another lecture I was doing which was about like pathology and diagnosing and treatments and cures and she was talking about antidepressants and she said something that like literally has stayed with me until then and she was talking about the importance of therapy in tandem with antidepressant medication and she basically said that Taking antidepressants and not going to therapy just gives people the energy and the clarity of mind to actually jump off that building. Like it just gives people the energy to do the self-harm behavior they considered doing but weren't motivated to do before. And that like blew my mind because it made sense to me. I was like, yeah, I guess if like you're taking antidepressants and they're helping you target the physiological symptoms of depression like your serotonin, And if you're experiencing depression and you're lethargic and you're not getting out of bed and you're depressed and you want to die, and now you have the ability to get up and do something about it, but you still like are unhappy, which is a dangerous combination. And when she said that, I was like, huh, that's really interesting because I'm not against antidepressants and I'm not against taking medication, but I've always been hesitant myself to at least do it without therapy. And then I think from that conversation, I've really started to like think about the broader context of like what causes mental illness and she was telling us that like people who take antidepressants and don't go to therapy have higher suicide rates and I was like well the antidepressants aren't really curing their depression then like taking them is not making these people happier so what are we doing why is this pedal just like a treatment then if it like has to be taken with therapy and I guess like I was thinking quite critically about like the public opinion or the public conversations around antidepressants which are obviously quite different to how psychologists talk about them like the way that my friends talk about antidepressants the way that people around me talk about antidepressants and they really are like quite romanticized I think you know you hear a lot of people say like medication saved my life and I believe them I'm sure it did but I feel like I hear really positive non-critical conversations around the prescription of antidepressants and you know making sure that they're accessible and making sure that they're free and which are all things that should be happening but I don't really hear a lot of conversations criticizing the same thing and then like starting to read Dr. Aisha's posts and stuff like that have really kind of I think come around to like being a bit more critical because it's like yeah if antidepressants don't cure depression what does and also what causes it then because if putting the serotonin back to normal levels doesn't end your depression what's causing it like what's the causal relationship and I think there's like it opens some interesting conversations around like capitalism and so reading Dr. Aisha's Instagram posts is kind of like exposing me to a new way to look at like depression and mental illness because I've always kind of been dissatisfied with the way we talk about and explain depression. And I feel like intrinsically I've understood that I've been dissatisfied because it's probably why I've never actually pursued therapy or antidepressants seriously because, and a lot of my friends as well, like the reason we kind of never really went to therapy because I was like, I am feeling down about the state of the world. Uh, namely things like climate change and mass poverty really distress me and I think about them and I stay up at night being sad about not being able to fix them and like that's kind of really what gets me down is like a bit of a helplessness about the world and 
while I'm sure if I went to therapy, I would learn some really good coping mechanisms, they won't really get rid of my trigger. What can my therapist do about ending climate change? Like I'm not depressed about something that I have control over and that can be really frustrating. And that's kind of why I've never gone to therapy, which disclaimer, I'm not saying don't go to therapy. I'm not even saying that I'm right in not going to therapy because I really probably should go to therapy. Yes. But (laughs) I feel like I need to make that disclaimer, but I'm just like, I'm just trying to be honest about, even if it's like maybe a bit problematic that that's my thought pattern, but that is my thought pattern. That is why I haven't really like tried super hard to go to therapy. Like I have tried it, but like not really. Because like, yeah, I've always just kind of felt like, what are you going to do for me that I like, like, what do I need you for? Yeah. And I think that's where conversations about mental health. And I think something we want to sort of talk about today is I think there's been like really rigid perceptions of mental health. And I think the way that we talk about like mental illness and these struggles sometimes, you know, build these paradoxes, you know, sometimes there's this incoherence between like the way we think about the world uh, and the way we talk about feelings, because I think what has been so essential is like the chemical imbalances being at like the center of mental health, you know, psychology and increasingly empirical psychology, which looks at, you know, the neurology of the brain can notice things like this person is feeling depressed. And if we look at, you know, their, their hormonal levels or, you know, the chemicals in their brain, they're lacking serotonin. Thus we can say that they are depressed because they have little serotonin. Yeah. Where it's like, sometimes you can ask like maybe they have little serotonin because they're depressed. Like maybe it's not they're depressed because they have low serotonin. Yeah, the causal relationship sometimes I think can can be confused. Yeah, well, I think the question is like, is low serotonin the cause of depression or a symptom of it? Which kind of leads me to, I guess, a lot of the stuff that Dr. Aisha talks about on Instagram, which has kind of opened up my mind a little bit on this topic because she posits that, yeah, low serotonin is a symptom rather than a cause of depression. But really, she kind of questions like what we even mean when we diagnose mental illnesses and why we even diagnose them um, and why we medicate them and what the purpose of medication is. It's really radical stuff. She is an anarchist, which I love. She's totally radicalizing me to anarchism, to be honest. But um, And I'm not. <laughs> she's doing a better job than you. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, well, she asked some really interesting questions on why we consider these as like pathologies. And like maybe depression is like a very rational response to a really fucked up world. And I totally agree with that and have kind of always thought that. I actually remember having a conversation with my mum, because we were just talking about like being a psychologist and, you know, how emotionally draining that is because she sees a lot of clients that have really serious and confronting and awful things happen to them. Uh, And there was a time in one of her past roles where she was working quite closely with refugees that had experienced like really fucked up stuff, really horrible violence and torture and like awful things. And we were just talking about like clients and like, you know, just like it being hard to be a psychologist. And she was telling me that one of the hardest things about her job is when her clients are talking to her about like their stressor or like the thing that's causing them trauma or like what it is that's upsetting them. And it's not something she can really help them with. And that that happens really frequently, you know, like maybe her client is depressed because they're poor and like they cannot afford basic things that would give them the stability to find joy. Like they're, they're so busy trying to escape, for example, I don't know, like 
an abusive partner and they're in a situation where they don't have financial assistance what are they meant to do like how can you like you can help that person i guess have a good mindset and practice like behavior that is kind to themselves and try and help them not panic but like they're in a fucked up situation and their helplessness and depression is quite valid and like anyone would feel that way and it's not that like they have a biological reason for just being more depressed than other people like their situation is fucked they are actively being attacked and this is a rational response to that behavior and i would argue that like majority of the time a mental illness quote unquote is probably just a rational response to a trauma that is being inflicted upon us and capitalism is a trauma that is being inflicted upon us like i think the average person i think a lot of us are pretty depressed And, like, I think a lot of people, especially people who are in, like, comfortable lives, who, like, might be middle class and, like, have parental income support and stuff, think, like, yeah, it's just low serotonin because I have no reason to actually be depressed because nothing fucked up has happened to me. And it's, like, but you're existing in a world that is under attack by capitalism and you're existing in survival mode all the time. We all are. We're all existing in survival mode under capitalism, especially at the moment, having come out of a pandemic. And, like, a lot of us experience survivor's guilt as well because there's a lot of, like, there are people out there who have it worse than me, who are more traumatized than me, who are more struggling than me. Like we are, we are actually suffering. <laughs> like we are actually all collectively experiencing trauma. Like the trauma of life, the trauma of capitalism. Is it like pathological to have a depressed response to that or to have an anxious response to that? I personally don't think it is. And it's something that I've been thinking about a lot recently. I think that like depression, quote unquote, is like normal. Like, it's normal in these circumstances. That's why depression rates are skyrocketing with every generation. It's because the world is actually fucked up. And, like, you know, it's like we're in, like, an apocalypse. We're in, like, a climate apocalypse. We're so in tune to the injustices around us. Of course you'd be beat down. Essentially, I think the... And this is, like, my own kind of conclusion helped along by Dr. Aisha. Is that, like, the chemical imbalance theory... While it may have validated people before, I think it actually like gaslights us into believing that mental health is an individual problem mm. and it's our problem rather than like a collective cultural problem. I think that like it makes us think that we just have to solve our own problem, which is depression, and we're personally responsible for dealing with it when actually this is something that's been inflicted upon us and we need a collective response to it. Yeah, no, I think that's completely true because I think there's two ways you could explain like the rise in depression or, or illness, mental illness. One would be that simply people were mentally ill before people experienced, you know, malaise before. However, they had no way to really express that or there wasn't the words there or there wasn't the services there to diagnose people. But then the other side would be, what if it's true that people are just getting more depressed, that more young people more than ever are depressed, that more young people than ever are, are anxious or feeling, you know, this, this discontentness, which is hard to explain. And this is exactly what Mark Fisher has really discussed and probably what he's most famous for discussing. And he's really the one that started to shift my opinion on how we should conceptualize things like depression and mental illness within capitalism and in our world 
because in fact, maybe mental illness isn't something that is purely like biological problem. Like it's not an, a disease that you, you somehow gain that is making your brain function improperly. Maybe that's not the cause of relationship, but maybe the world that you exist in makes your brain function a certain way. Yes. So Dr. Aisha has a capitalism like 101 kind of post about this. And she refers to that as bioessentialism. Mm, like yes. the idea that it's not like random that you appear that way. Like, yes, in the sense that like depression can manifest biologically, but like what causes that? Because genes are static. They can be triggered depending on your circumstances. And if your circumstances are triggering your biological response to have depression, like it doesn't mean that there aren't those factors. They don't disappear. Yeah. And I think bioessentialism is something that's really interesting to bring up because it essentially to be an essentialist is to say that bodies or, or that people are meant to function in a certain way, that there is like an ideal specific intentional function of the human body, that the brain is meant to work in such a way, that there is such a thing as an ideal brain and we're mm. all just trying to replicate the ideal brain. And if your brain looks like this instead of like this, that means that we have a problem, that your brain is diseased or you're ex- experiencing an illness. But the reality is, is that there's no ideal function. Well, that- there... See, under capitalism, there is, right? Because the ideal function is the worker. And so anyone's brain function that deviates from the ideal behaviors of the worker, they're considered like abnormal or mentally ill. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with you. But I also think like even outside capitalism, we have these perceptions of the way bodies are meant to function, the way bodies are meant, what they're meant to look like, the way they're meant to act. And if you try and strip that back to say that there is no essential self, there is no beneath everything, the ideal of a human, then things like depression stop being like abnormalities and just start being ways of being. And we can be not happy and we can want to change those ways of being, but they stop being diseases or they begin being diseases in the most literal way, which is to be uneased, to be diseased, but they're not pathological. Exactly. They're just responses to a situation. And when you start to think of them that way, then it becomes a lot easier to like help somebody with those circumstances as well. Because if we treated a mental illness by alleviating the circumstances that cause it rather than medicating the individual, we would actually achieve something. We would actually like shift, I think, the way we approach things. But I find what you said about like I guess the essential brain or like bioessentialism really interesting because in one of her posts Dr. Aisha talks about the DSM and like the, I think, I think we're up to the DSM-5 now, maybe, mm, yeah, I think. I Is that so. the one we're on now? But she talks about how like the DSM-1 referred to work like a dozen times. And then the DSM-2 or 3 referred to work like 350 times. Because we actually define mental illness based on the way it affects our productivity and ability to function in the workplace. And a really good example of that is actually ADHD. She talks about how the symptoms of ADHD are listed as symptoms that affect work. So like in children, ways you can recognize ADHD are like fidgets in the classroom or is disruptive in the classroom or interrupts. And like all of these things are symptoms of a child breaking out of the rigid ideas that we have of how like these circumstances and workplaces function. But like in a world where we didn't have those rules, this wouldn't be considered problematic behavior. It would just be behavior. Um, And that's not to say that people who have the brain chemistry of ADHD wouldn't exist, but it's more like we wouldn't see this as a debilitating or dysfunctional behavior. It would just be a behavior. It would just be like something that people do. To me, it's not strange to think that some kids would have trouble focusing within like 
the space of a classroom. Like that's a really fucked up space. It's all about teaching discipline. It's about making docile workers. subjects. Yeah, exactly. It's workers. Like they're just building you into workers. Yeah, I don't think it's that strange. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you can say this not just about ADHD, but about a lot of mental illnesses. They're often defined depending on how disruptive they are. Even like terms like debilitating like an illness being debilitating and it's like is it debilitating because it actually prevents that person from functioning or is it debilitating because society doesn't want to allow that person to function like how much do we just create the idea of this being debilitating like ADHD is one of them like yes people who have ADHD can really struggle to do certain tasks that obviously are not suited to people with ADHD and then that's why we medicate ADHD because it makes things easier but also like what if we just instead of medicating the individual to like adjust to the circumstances just adjusted the circumstances to the individual yeah what if we just met people's individual needs instead of having like this society-wide conception of how people should behave and function and then we're just like labeling anybody who deviates from that as abnormal but so many fucking people deviate from that so how abnormal is it really like how do you even define abnormal because like one of my favorite kind of pop psychology statistics is that like one in three people will be depressed at some point in their lives and it's like well is this like abnormal Because, like, even in psychology, when I was doing my minor, like, we kind of learned about how they categorize behavior as, like, a mental illness, like, what constitutes a mental illness. And there's different, like, boxes that it has to tick. And it doesn't have to tick all of them. Um, But it's, like, these are just kind of ways, these are just kind of parameters. And, like, one of them is abnormal behavior. But, like, even in my psych lecture, like, they were pretty clear on, like, that that's a pretty vague way to talk about things because something that's abnormal in one context is not abnormal in another one. The example they kind of gave to us was just like the idea of someone having uh, revelations, like religious revelations or spiritual revelations. Um, They were saying that a shaman or a cultural leader or like, you know, a priest or whatever, like somebody who has significance in a religious context, receiving messages from God or like having a vision or like being able to guide you spiritually because they've seen something like that's considered normal. Like you wouldn't consider that abnormal. But like if some random guy in a suit who was like a CEO of like a big company randomly comes in one day spewing about like I've had this revelation from God we probably think that there's something going on there mm-hmm. and that he's probably unwell maybe he's delusional yeah uh, maybe you know he is developing a mental disorder because like in that context his behavior is quote unquote odd and I find that like really interesting because a lot of behaviors that we consider abnormal I would argue actually aren't abnormal they're just not useful for this particular society and a lot of things aren't considered useful like anything pretty much that disrupts the worker relationship is considered dysfunctional yeah precisely it seems that all of this is very very relative and that maybe an economic system or something like capitalism helps define what is or isn't a disorder what is orderly or disorderly what it can exploit and what it can't exploit or what it has easier time exploiting and what it has a harder time exploiting yeah and it also seems that so that, that that's one side of it. But then the other side is that, in fact, maybe this system, you know, these societal relations are producing mental disorders. Uh, and I think that's something that Mark Fisher really, really explains well. Because while he was alive, a big part of what he discussed was essentially the subject, the human, the individual face to face with capitalism. I think he was asking really, and what he writes about is how does capitalism affect the way we experience the world not just what is it like to live in capitalism but how does capitalism begin to rewire the brain 
And how does neoliberalism specifically, you know, this modern incarnation of capitalism, what does this do to the individual? So in Capitalist Realism, which I think I've cited on the podcast before, because it's a fantastic book and I think everyone should read it. Fisher says this about the growing problem of stress and depression and mental health in neoliberal capitalism. He says, I want to argue that it's necessary to reframe the growing problem of stress and distress in capitalist societies. Instead of treating it as an incumbent on individuals to resolve their own psychological distress, instead, that is, of accepting the vast privatization of stress that has taken place over the last 30 years, we need to ask, how has it become acceptable that so many people, and especially so many young people, are ill? The, quote, mental health plague in capitalist societies would suggest that, Instead of being the only social system that works, capitalism is inherently dysfunctional and that the cost of it appearing to work is very, very high. Yeah, exactly. Um, Which is kind of what I was saying earlier about the fact that like literally everybody is depressed. Like this is not like abnormal anymore. And like, what does that say about the way capitalism affects us? And what does that say about the relationship between capitalism and mental illness? Because like the further we go into this capitalist hellscape and the more we are in late stage capitalism, the more depressed and mentally ill people are. So there's clearly a relationship there. Yeah, and I think the words which are most salient to me is the privatization of stress about how the way we talk about mental illness has been sort of in line with the way we talk about capitalism or the way we talk about the economy. Neoliberalism, which we've discussed on the show before, you know, emerging in the 80s, is about the increasing privatization of everything, that all public services have been increasingly defunded and instead we rely on capitalism to provide for us. And as we see the privatization of the world around us in economic terms, we've also seen the privatization of the individual. They were all meant to be self-sufficient in a way. I think it's interesting, Margaret Thatcher, who is sort of the person who I think is most associated with the rise of neoliberalism. She says something like, there is no such thing as society. There are only individuals and families. And I think what comes with that is this idea that you almost have to take everything on yourself. That if you're feeling sad, that's something that you've done wrong. If you're feeling anxious that something wrong with you. But I think what Mark Fisher is getting at is that it's actually the other way around. It's so strange that we privatize stress because I think we should almost deprivatize stress. We should publicize, make public stress. Yeah, because it's collective. Because it's collective. And it's that, in fact, stress is something that we experience because the world is demanding so much more from us. Mark Fisher talks about, in an interview, in the 90s, we saw the emergence of two things. The emergence of cyberspace and the emergence of Valium. It seems that Mm. as there has been increasing demands that no longer you can escape work, but you have to bring work with you. You always have to be checking emails. You can never clock off. We've seen increasing demands of people in terms of their work under capitalism. And then we also see the increasing of medication, of people having to be medicated because they cannot deal with these new demands. And I don't think those are coincidental. Yes. Okay. I kind of want to get into that for a second as well. So... On what you said with the privatization of stress, that's so true because like stress in itself is now a commodity. It's marketable. It's profitable. Yes. Um, And I even see that just like at work, like, you know, obviously me and every other worker on this planet is stressed and more so stressed and burnt out than usual. And like, I have all these emails cropping up, all these like PR emails and stuff of like people that are like, you know, feeling burnt out, feeling stressed, like we've got the top 10 tips to manage your stress. And like, there's all these companies that are like now 
creating a business out of helping people deal with their stress. And I don't mean like psychologists and psychiatrists, so we'll get to them in a second. But I mean like random people starting businesses that are all about just like coaching, but they're not qualified or just like writing pop psychology articles about 10 ways to be stressed less and like your stress have a 10% discount code on our products called stress less and like just stress itself is like this huge profit mine because people are desperate to feel better and you can market them all kinds of products like those fucking fidget spinners and like god knows what else has come up and like those pop things and like there's just a million things every day to like micromanage your stress on this really like individual level of like here are all the things you can buy to help deal with stress rather than the bigger conversations we should be having of like how can we change society so that we're not constantly under stress but then yeah like you said with Valium now you're wrong about podcast has a really interesting episode called I think it's just called the Stepford Wives actually or it's about the Stepford Wives you can look it up but they like really kind of talk quite in depth about the rise of Valium and other kind of psychiatric prescriptions And how they got popular. And it's really, really fascinating because with the rise of Valium and other kind of adjacent medications, it was mostly marketed to women, right? So especially in America from like the 50s to 70s where we're having like, we kind of started off with like this real housewife idea and then like kind of feminism started to spread and women started to want to work and like leave the home and we're fighting for voting rights and blah 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 that Stepford Wives episode has a really interesting deep dive into the way that pharmacology subscriptions arose marketed towards women that were feeling oppressed under like patriarchy and it was like you know are you a woman that's feeling stressed because you have to deal with like all this bullshit Take a Valium. This will make your life easier. And that's a similar conversation, except instead of capitalism, they were talking about patriarchy. But I think it's the same conversation where they were like, are you an oppressed person? Instead of alleviating your circumstances, you should get drugged the fuck up, (laughs) which is what they were doing. Yeah. And it's funny because I think people, when they learn about that with Valium and Housewives, like if you listen to that episode, I don't think it's controversial, right? Like it's not a controversial topic. I think a lot of people are like, yeah, it wasn't that fucked up. They just drugged up a bunch of women and gaslit them into thinking they were crazy. But like, we're still doing that just like on a much more subtle level. It's more sinister. But I do think there's kind of a similar narrative now as well with like depression and antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication and like psychiatry as a whole and like big pharma like there is a conversation to be had about the way we market these things as cures rather than like symptom management yeah i mean depression and mental illness is incredibly lucrative you know to talk about big pharma or these pharmaceutical companies and that leads me to actually another quote from mark fisher that i i want to read and it's a long quote but I, i think again it's really insightful In criticizing sort of mental illness being seen as like an essential biological deficiency, uh, he says this. Considering mental illness an individual chemico-biological problem has enormous benefits for capitalism. First, it reinforces capital's drive towards atomistic individualization. You are sick because of your brain chemistry. Second, it provides an enormously lucrative market in which multinational pharmaceutical companies can peddle their pharmaceuticals. We can cure you with our SSRIs. It goes without saying that all mental illnesses are neurologically insubstantiated, but this says nothing about their causation. If it is true, for instance, that depression is constituted by low serotonin levels, what still needs to be explained is why particular individuals have low levels of serotonin. This requires a social and political explanation. 
Yes. Okay. So let's kind of get into the way that like psychiatry and psychology responds to mental illness. There's this really, 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 really great New Yorker article that I will link in our sources. It's really long, but you have the option to listen to it if you want to. And I really loved it and found it really fascinating. So make sure you read it. But it essentially follows the story of a woman called Laura, who, you know, was like a star student and like really great at school and really perfect in every capacity. And other people thought she was perfect too. And she came from a wealthy family, you know, everything going for her, but like was really depressed. And, you know, like saw a psychiatrist and was diagnosed with many things here and there and constantly put onto medication. The article itself is like about the difficulty of getting off medication and it's very localized to America where I think they're a bit more trigger happy when it comes to prescribing medication than they are here. But it's about her and her story. But it's also a really fascinating article because it opens up a lot of conversations on the way that psychiatry and psychology can often fail to think about the socio and cultural causations of mental illness. And with this girl, Laura, like she, I mean, she's older now, like she's older and married and stuff now, but like growing up, I think in 19 years, she was on 14 different medications. Wow. Yeah. It's like, it's pretty fucked up actually. It's pretty crazy. But like, that's the thing, like this is a really common story and hers is quite inspiring because she like has it really rough. And like, despite being on all these different medications all the time, like she never really gets better she like manages her symptoms and then she does it and she also really it's very interesting the way she starts to think of her mental illness like she starts to see her mental illness like in the language of the dsm-5 like you know there's at some point she was diagnosed with bipolar which then she was undiagnosed with and she was diagnosed again with bipolar 2 and then at some point she was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and like constantly being diagnosed with things but like it got to the point where like she would feel a sad emotion and she would be like oh this must be a symptom of my bipolar And there was just, like, she really lost touch with, like, what is a real emotion and, like, what is, like, potentially just her, like, quote-unquote mental illness, which isn't her fault. Like, it was just the way she was gaslit into never knowing which emotions, like, were her when all of them, I would argue, were. And then to be put on, like, a massive cocktail of medication. And it was so funny in, like, a really grim way when you're reading the article because then, like, then she would get side effects of medication, which they would chalk up to, like... Like the illness. Illness. Yeah. yeah. It'd be like, oh, oh, and now you're experiencing brain fog. You must also have this disorder. But like that is just a side effect of like the 17 medications that she was on. Anyway, the article is really long. That's like the bare minimum explanation of it. But the reason I'm bringing it up now was because it criticizes the way that like, and she personally criticizes the way that over all those years and all those medications, no one ever really stopped to think about why she was depressed in the first place. They were constantly trying to cure her depression, like on a chemical level, without ever thinking about why she was depressed. It was just like, oh, like her chemicals are out of whack. We'll just fix that with all these like other chemicals that will pump into her. But like, when you really think about it, she was probably just really depressed because she was like a high achiever under an immense amount of stress. She was also a woman. There's like this natural trauma that comes with existing as a woman in the world. There are so many things that like in a more holistic way, she could have been taught to like cope with and deal with and talk about and process. And she started all these diagnoses and medications when she was in her teen years. Like you don't even know who you are at that age. You don't even know what your baseline, what your normal is. And then it took her her whole life to understand that she eventually it took her many 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 months in the 90s uh to get off all her medication and she like started a blog about it and like hundreds of people 
who were in similar circumstances to her were like coming to her for advice. It's a really inspiring, beautiful article. Um, but it opens a lot of questions of like, we just kind of never stop to think about why somebody is depressed and how we can alleviate the cause of their depression. And psychiatry, I think, can be guilty of doing that. There is a lot of history in like people being very distrustful of psychiatrists because I think there is this reputation of just being like all in with big pharma and just prescribing medications willy nilly because it's profitable. And I mean, there's like a huge history in like anti psychiatry and criticisms in how psychiatry functions and specifically in the way it can believe in the chemical imbalance theory or at least function in a way that validates it by constantly prescribing medication without any kind of holistic, cultural, like sociocultural approach. Yeah, so like you were saying, scepticism towards psychiatry has a very deep history. And in fact, there was a massive anti-psychiatry movement that emerged in the 60s and really reached its heyday uh, in the 70s. And it was an incredibly broad movement. And I think that's really important to stress, like very, very broad. It ranged from people who were just critical of some aspects of you know modern psychology, modern psychiatry, to people who completely dismissed the entire profession, all the discourse surrounding it, that all psychiatry is pseudoscience and it's all made up, that mental illness is a myth, that it doesn't exist, that people are who they are and we shouldn't turn these things into like a pathology. So many of these sort of anti-psychiatry proponents will point to things like involuntary hospitalization as like abuses of power. They'll talk to about the power imbalances between, you know, the patient and the doctor. They'll question the effectiveness of pharmaceuticals. And and some will say that, you know, there needs to be more discussions about, you know, the side effects or how effective they are. And other people will say that they do far more damage than good. So it's a very broad movement. And I think it's really important to differentiate maybe where we are compared to a lot of the discourse that was happening at this time and what still remains. Because I think when you look at anti-psychiatry, it's mostly sort of dismissed, at least from what I can see. And when it comes to things like all medication is completely damaging and has no positive effects, I think we can say that that is you know, not true. We know many people personally that you know, will swear by their medication. And who need it? Uh, sincerely, yeah, that they need it. And you know, we, it's we know people who- we knew them before they got on med- medication and afterwards, and we see a significant improvements in their quality of life. And if you asked me a few years ago, like where I stood on psychiatry versus anti-psychiatry, I think I very firmly would have been on the side of pro-psychiatry. I think the current sentiment is very clearly like anti-anti-psychiatry, like everything needs to be open. It's something we talk about so frequently. But it was through reading the philosophy of like Michel Foucault and like Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari where I began to be more aware of critiques that I never really considered about psychiatry. And it's not that I think it's something to be dismissed. I think we've made that very obvious, but it's opened up these new perspectives that I didn't really realize were there. Yeah, I feel like with anti-psychiatry or really any kind of criticism of any psychological discipline, I would have been really adverse to. I mean, I did a psychology minor, like I obviously feel sympathy and an interest in psychology and psychiatry. And I used to want to be a psychologist, lol, back in the day. But when we talk about anti-psychiatry, it's like quite a harsh name, but I'm not like anti-psychiatrists. And I'm not anti like this existing as a discipline. But I think that anti-psychiatry is purposefully 
saying psychiatry and not psychiatrists. Like, it's purposefully a broad criticism of the way this can function. The same way that I'm, like, very distrustful of GPs, like, for example, just prescribing antidepressants because I know way too many people who would just literally went to the doctor once, said they were depressed, and were just prescribed antidepressants. Yeah, I Like, think- I'm critical of that. Yeah. But I'm not anti-GPs, but I would say in this context, like, maybe I am. No, I'm definitely not anti-GPs, but I think a, a way that a lot of GPs can act when it comes to not only mental health, but just a lot of abnormalities just sort of generally. They have, like, a very rigid way of how the brain is meant to work, how the body is meant to work. And if you don't fit into that perfectly, then I think alarms sort of go off in their head and they're like, oh, we need to fix that. Or yeah, exactly. if, if you have present them with how you're feeling and because you're feeling down and you want to see someone for help uh, and you start describing this really complex and specific circumstance, they'll hear you mention one thing about like, oh, I've been feeling, you know, brain fog. And then they'll just hone in on that and ignore everything that- Yeah, and they'll be like, oh, brain fog, that's a symptom of blah, blah, blah. Yes, because there are all these prescribed and already set ways that the brain can work. And it's just about figuring out how your brain works. Yeah. Instead of realizing that things are more complex than that. And humans are more complex than that. With anti-psychiatry, like I want to make it clear that I'm not anti-psychiatrist, but I am anti- I guess the ways that psychiatrists can do things that are problematic. And I also want to make it clear that like psychiatrists are also very critical of like the chemical imbalance myth and like the way that other psychiatrists do things. There's this um, article that I will link in our sources called Debunking the Two Chemical Imbalance Myths Again. And it's by a psychiatrist who is also the editor of the Psychiatrist Times for three years. And he writes about like the chemical imbalance myth and how he doesn't believe in it because he thinks, well, he talks about the history of how that term even came up and that how a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists never use the term chemical imbalance. Like that's something that people use that aren't into psychology or psychiatry. But he says that as far as he's come across it in his many years in the field, it's more like it's used like a metaphor. People are not using this as a metaphor. People are using this in the most literal sense, but I think it was kind of bastardized and like generalized just how things always are. Yeah, I guess I want you to bring that up because I think people are going to hear anti-psychiatry and freak out. Yeah. I don't hate your psychiatrist and I'm not telling you to not go back to them. So no. just, just, just to be clear, like psychiatrists are also critical of psychiatry. Like it's a term for criticism of the way psychiatry as an industry can often kind of lose sight of the patient's humanity and circumstances and emotions and can just kind of really hone into like a very specific symptom, a neurological symptom of how they're feeling and then just cure that and treat that as like a cure of their mental illness. Like that's what it's about. And it's important to say that because I think that people will be, I think, worried. Like people will be listening to us and be like, are you anti-mental health support? And it's like, no, I'm not. Yeah. No, because, like, the last thing you want to do is say that, like, a person's illness is invalid. In fact, I think we're in some ways we're saying, like, the opposite thing. That it's, like, it's so valid because I think it's a response to circumstance. And I think a lot of what people in, you know, the 60s and 70s in terms of anti-psychiatry and philosophy around the individual, around the subject, what they're trying to do is to say that, like, back in those times, they were often talking about, you know, very extreme mental illnesses compared to, like, anxiety and depression. And they they used the term madness because that was often what people would say at the time. And they would say that madness isn't a natural or biological category, but it's a political one. And I want to say the same thing about stuff like anxiety or depression or ADHD or what a lot of people around us are experiencing 
that it's not purely a natural, essential, biological category or explanation or description, but it's a political one. That mental illness is political, that it doesn't just exist in the realm of medical discourse. You know, it exists in the, in the realm of socio-cultural, this entire zeitgeist. Yeah, because like mental illness, we would argue, is like a direct response to socio-cultural or socio-political circumstances and that the biology in a way is irrelevant because your genes aren't static. They can be activated at any time depending on the trauma you are dealing with and they're not really relevant in causation. And this is like a scientifically backed take. I'm not just talking out of my ass here. <laughs> like the chemical imbalance myth is in itself outdated and not really used by psychologists and psychiatrists. Like they understand that, but I think there's like a real like pop culture misunderstanding. Like it's kind of become like a buzzword that a lot of teens use when they're trying to validate their depression to their parents, but it's not really real. And it's important to understand that because understanding that actually mental illness is in a way a concept and that it's triggered by your socioeconomic circumstances and that it can be alleviated with the correct socioeconomic circumstances or maybe not alleviated, but accounted for. Yeah. Like we can create a circumstance where the mental illness no longer is debilitating or no longer badly affects you. Like there are, I'm not going to say cures or treatments, but there are ways that we can just like fix the circumstances so that you can function the way you're already functioning without it being debilitating and distressing. Yeah. And I think there's probably two things I really want to say when it comes to like having these sort of discussions. One is like, and I hope this disclaimer has been enough. I think people can get concerned when we start talking like this because then they'll be like, oh, so you're saying that my mental illness or the way I'm feeling isn't real. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I've had this conversation in the past. I've had people say like my ADHD would still exist outside of capitalism. And it's like, yeah, you would still experience uh, the neurological symptoms of ADHD or like, for example, depression. Like you may, you can still have low serotonin outside of capitalism. Um, but what we're trying to say is that the way society functions around you would be different. So you might still have ADHD outside of capitalism, but it might not be debilitating because people would shift your surroundings to work with your ADHD. And another thing which I think is sort of interesting, which I think often like pops up, is like how people say revolution is ableist because after revolution, people say that you won't be able to have access to like medication, right? Like you've seen that. Oh yeah, I've heard that a lot, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's interesting because I, I think it's incorrect for two reasons. One, we will still be able to produce, you know, medication during and post-revolution. I don't think that would really be a concern. Yeah, because the means of production would be in like the workers' hands and yeah. they're the ones who know how to make Medications. The CEO of like a pharmaceutical company doesn't know how to make the medication. That knowledge is held by the workers. Yeah, we can we could execute a CEO and still know how to make Prozac. And if that is a demand from, you know, the people that can be fulfilled. But then the second thing is perhaps I think that we would see a a decrease in the, the need for medication when the circumstances have been improved. Yeah. And I think, you know what, like we can kind of say that about not just mental illness specifically, but like a lot of disabilities, I think. Mm. I think that I, I definitely see a lot of discourse uh, around like revolution or revolutionary politics being ableist because they apparently leave out disabled people. And it's like, no, it's more like, let's think about what constitutes a disability because the actual definition of that would change outside of capitalism. Like things that are considered disabilities now 
um, are considered disabilities because they can't function along with the way that society works and the way that workers are working. Like it's considered a disability because it's not compatible with capitalism. That's why it's a disability. There are lots of things that wouldn't be considered disabilities outside of capitalism and things that still might. We would be in a society where we work with you. We would remove the barriers that prevent you from being able to partake in things. Um, something that I really wanted to quickly note is like, we talk a lot about depression, but I feel like conversations that we miss are like complex illnesses like schizophrenia but even now if you look at like the way genes can be activated like schizophrenia is considered you know a genetic illness it's like a biological thing that happens but like there's a very high rate of schizophrenia among homeless people and they're the most likely people to be schizophrenic and it's like it's not because like did they also have a gene that was made that made them more likely to be homeless like no like they're triggered into developing traits of schizophrenia or they're more likely to develop schizophrenia because they're experiencing a, a trauma yeah. and their trauma is directly related to capitalism in a world where you weren't constantly subjected to trauma you're less likely to develop the mental illnesses that result from it meaning we're less likely to need symptom management like medication for those things. And also we wouldn't need to adjust the individual. We would be adjusting the society. And I think that's a really key area of our approach to mental illness. In the New Yorker article that I mentioned earlier, there's a section where uh, the writer, the journalist interviews, I think she's a psychiatrist or a psychologist, on like the ways that psychiatrists you know, have gone wrong in the past and especially with Laura, the subject of the article. And the psychiatrist says something really interesting, which I think is really great. She says, our conception of mental health is now synonymous with the absence of symptoms rather than with a return to a patient's baseline of functioning, her mood or personality before and between episodes of illness. Once you abandon the idea of the personal baseline, it becomes possible to think of emotional suffering as relapse instead of something to be expected from an individual's way of being in the world. And that's kind of exactly what I was talking about earlier, about like, you know, we pathologize everything. Sometimes your behavior, maybe it's bad for you, but that doesn't make it pathological. Like maybe being sad is not great for you, but that doesn't make it pathological. You're being sad because you're, you know, being subjected to a specific circumstance. And in her quote about like, mental health being synonymous with the absence of symptoms is really important I think and a key point in criticism to the way that psychiatry can function because mental illness isn't just a cluster of symptoms and when you look at it as just a cluster of symptoms which is how modern day psychiatry often can look at it it just means you just cure the individual symptoms so like here's the medication to raise your serotonin here's the medication to lower your anxiety levels you know that doesn't actually deal with the root cause and it just kind of can make it worse for a lot of people who then feel like alienated from their bodies because like now they're taking medication that's supposed to fix them and they're not feeling fixed but also their like emotions are like not really matching their circumstances and it can be confusing and that's what Laura speaks about significantly about constantly feeling alienated from her body and like she's not part of it and like she likes that to medication but the point is mental illnesses isn't just a cluster of symptoms or certain chemical imbalances. There are so many socio-political factors that lead into that. And once you think about that, once you think about not just that, not just their chemical imbalance, but their circumstances, it's a lot easier to see why somebody's behaving that way and to help them. And that's what she's saying. We need to think about not just what's happening in the brain, but what's happening to her, to Laura, which no one ever did for her. And I think that kind of leads like, what does this mean? Like we've put all this criticism out there of the way the mental health model works and the way we approach mental illness and quote unquote cure it or treat it. 
like what is a more holistic approach to mental illness because that's what we kind of want to see in the world and that's what I think we would see post-capitalism and it's exactly that right so it's not localizing someone's mental illness to a very specific like bodily function and instead considering the way they would normally behave in this situation and then what has changed the situation to now make them feel this way and also just like when somebody is mentally ill it's the idea of like adjusting the society to the individual rather than the individual to the society i have a really good quote from the article about cooper who is laura's partner uh cooper was given adderall for adhd when he was 17 and developed an addiction to it But he talks about how as an adolescent, uh, he was made to believe, quote, I am not set up for this world. I need tweaking. I need adjusting. Like we need to fix him because he's flawed and broken because of his ADHD. And we need to give him medication that fixes those problems that he can now function in society. Whereas, you know, like when I kind of dream about a better world, it's the idea that like we wouldn't see ourselves that way. And we wouldn't see ourselves as flawed and broken or defective and that these can just be behaviors that we experience like ADHD is a good example because ADHD is so specific to the worker environment right like the things that are considered debilitating in ADHD are only debilitating in capitalism but then also the other side of that that maybe they don't have to be things that we want to change but then also maybe they do you know like I think it's important to not also be like, you're perfect the way you are. Like, you should change nothing. In fact, I think you shouldn't. You know, but I think it's all about the, per- the individual's choice. And I think well, exactly, the way yeah. I sort of think about it is would illnesses or disorders, and I use these sort of uh, regretfully or in quotations, uh, would these things such as ADHD need to be treated in a post-capitalist society? Who's to say? But- it's clear that capitalism requires ADHD to be treated and capitalism requires it more than the individual does. Exactly. So maybe people won't feel the need to be medicated or maybe they still will, but either way, they don't really have a choice because capitalism requires that they function in a very specific way. I'm glad you made that distinction because yeah, I don't want it to seem like I'm saying that there is no need for medication and that you're perfect just the way you are, but it's more like I think people should have a choice in how they approach and deal with their own condition and we definitely exist in a society where you have to be medicated or you have to be managing these symptoms in some capacity in order to partake in society and I don't think that's fair and that's kind of what leads to like oppression and especially like the underrepresentation of like disabled people in like pretty much any capacity and public kind of realm is because they're constantly excluded on the basis that they don't like function to capitalism's demands right and this is exactly what you know, the social model of disability is all about. So, the most simply, the social model of disability is looking at the way that disability is socially defined more than like being an intrinsic or, or natural thing. It's that an impairment like being unable to climb stairs wouldn't be seen as a disability if there were no stairs, you know. It's about what and who a society can accommodate. And this is mostly, I think, used in relation to physical impairments and about the way society is accessible to people with certain types of bodies. But I think it's also relevant to mental health and the way people exist, uh, sort of mental state, because I think capitalism and I think our society currently is able to accommodate some people and excludes others and forces those people to assimilate into a certain mode of being. But I think if a society was more open and was just able to accommodate so many ways of being, so many different types of, of, of being in the world, 
then I think they would no longer be seen as strictly as disabilities. I think they'd just be, you know, ways of existing. Exactly. Like the idea that uh, we only see things as, I guess, impairments when we can't accommodate them. But in a world where we did accommodate them, maybe we would shift our ideas of them. And Mm. that's like something we should really think about and consider, not just in terms of disabilities in the more conventional sense, like being in a wheelchair, but also in regards to mental illness. There's this quote from the New Yorker article that I found quite beautiful. It's towards the end and it really like resonated with me. And it's about Laura. She's come a long way. She's weaned herself off the many psychiatric drugs that she was on. She has survived a suicide attempt. She has been through it and she's finally at a place. Look, she has a strong distrust of psychiatry, which understandable, but she's kind of at a place where she's managing. And I'll read you the quote. She still felt overwhelmed by the tasks of daily life, like too many emails accumulating, and she cried about five times a week. She was too sensitive. She let situations escalate. Cooper said that his tendency in moments of tension was to get quiet, which exacerbated Laura's fear that she wasn't being heard. She did not see a therapist. She felt exhausted from years of analysing her most private thoughts. But, she said, if I actually sat in front of a psychiatrist and did an evaluation... I would totally meet the criteria for a number of diagnoses, but the diagnostic framework no longer felt meaningful to her. And I just really liked that quote because I think it kind of gets to the idea of like, I'm not saying that people don't experience these mental illnesses, but I'm saying that you don't need a book to hyperanalyze your emotions and that sometimes there are just ways of being and sometimes it's okay to experience that being if that's what you want to do. Other people in her circumstances would want to go to a therapist and they should do that if that's what they want to do. But it's kind of beautiful that she got to a point where she had, I guess, the conviction to know what she needs and to think, actually, I think therapy like is really bad for me and I don't like analyzing my emotions because I obsess over that. And I, then I lose the ability to just feel And I thought that was a beautiful end to that article because if you read it, her story is quite harrowing. But I guess if I was going to like sum up our point, because we've said a lot of controversial things here and there. So I feel like, again, we have to do a couple of disclaimers. The main point of this episode is not to say that medication is useless or bad for you or to moralize using it or to say that people are better or worse than others for using it or not using it. Like, You do you. And that's really important because mental illness is incredibly personal in the way that you experience it. It's unique to you. But the point of this episode is to point out that we should have less of a focus on treatment on an individual level and more of a focus on building a society that adapts to suit the needs of all its people, no matter how vulnerable they are, rather than adapting the individual to suit that society, which is, you know, what a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists currently do not necessarily by their choice in a capitalist society that individualizes mental health as a problem with you rather than a problem with your circumstances yeah i think to equip the language of mark fisher it would be don't privatize depression or don't privatize anxiety or any of these things but see them as a social a a public issue uh an issue relating to widespread economic political circumstances Yeah, we need to look at mental illness as holistic and as something that we can treat culturally. It's something that we can alleviate by actually like thinking in the broader picture about the way we treat individuals and the way that individuals are forced to function under capitalism. 
I feel like this episode is kind of a long-winded way for us to just ask you to consider why you consider certain behaviors mental illnesses. We're asking you to consider what defines a mental illness and how you define a mental illness and what treatment works for you and why it works for you and if it actually like deals with the cause of what you're experiencing. Again, I'm not saying get off your medication and I'm not telling you what to do when it comes to your personal health because that's a choice only you can really trust yourself to make. You're the authority on who you are. But I think we need to have critical discussions on how profitable mental illnesses and anxiety and depression and even more complex illnesses like schizophrenia are and how we deal with them and how we could just accommodate for them rather than like necessarily fix people. Cool. Well, thanks for listening. I think now is a good time to talk about our sponsors for the episode, which is you guys, our lovely, lovely listeners. Specifically, we'd like to thank Johnny, Sarah Wallace, Kieran, Pia, Sarah Carcano, Liz, and Katie. If you thought our discussion today was interesting, thought-provoking, or something you learned from, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Saliha. And if signing up isn't your thing, you can also donate to our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash Saliha to support future episodes. Both the PayPal and Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so check them out over there at Saliha Official and give me a follow if you liked today's episode. And follow my Instagram at mitches.miscellanea for discussions around film, books and music. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, which I imagine a lot of you will want to do with this particular episode, I think y'all will have some thoughts. And please do. Please do. Like, please feel free to DM either of us on Instagram. And and, to disagree with us. And to disagree with us. Like, we're willing to get into this nitty-gritty conversation. Uh, And you can also email us at herethethinglowpodcast.gmail.com. And please include your name, pronouns, and any other important info if you do. And of course, remember to follow and subscribe. It really helps the podcast get out there. Well, thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.